Most of the stories we see online about direct-to-consumer are all people who want to grow big. Fundamentally, you can't scale without stores. If you are doing that sort of personalization, you're doing it to a community. You know them enough to know what they want and where they are in their journey. And you have to do something to expand, and TV has proven to be a really good expander to mass market. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast again here, Shaheen Khan. Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm good, Shaheen. Good afternoon. Excellent. Looking forward to our discussion. So I'll start with this question that I had that I posed to you in one of our conversations, and that's about value add along the supply chain. And at what point does that value add disappear? But the upshot of that question was retail. Does retail add enough value, especially in light of modern times and supply chains and digital and all that? Right. I mean, the answer is, as always, it depends. It depends on what your goals are. It depends on what you want to be. It depends on a lot of things. I thought what was interesting is as we were talking about this, you brought up farms and farmers. And I think they're an interesting one to look at it through because we're used to looking at all these other kind of products. So let's look at something unusual. And my sense is, uh, yeah, retail adds a really significant value for farmers. Now, I think you mentioned that there were farmers that complain, well, retail kind of tells them what they want them to grow. And, you know, they have to fit within which type of apple variety is most popular this year and stuff like that. Yeah, I was hearing that they get pushed into certain crops and they lose some ability to actually provide what customers need because retail stores drive the price down and they limit their capabilities. You know, that's the complaint everywhere about working with retail is you are to some degree, when you work with retail, you do end up to some degree at the mercy of their whims, but they're usually not whims. They're usually based on something. So let's take the farmer. It's possible for a local farmer to do a direct to consumer play and for a local farmer to end up loving it. And you could do it a few ways, but you think about what those ways really are. You can sell at farmer markets. You can sell in a pick your own right? Uh, You pick kind of thing. We have a lot of those around Portland. And you can also do some of these package deals where you're delivering direct to consumer homes. So people bring stuff from different farms. All of those will give you a premium price for your product. So that all looks really great. But now let's look at the flip side, which is let's take a danger like spoilage. You know, once you sell your produce into a chain, they take a responsibility for spoilage. So you've got this trade-off of if going through retail, you're going to get a certain kind of size of contract, a certain reliability, a certain stability in it. You can't probably scale up without going to retail if you're a farmer. But the flip side is if you're happy with a certain size farm, just make good money every year and you're willing to take on the risks of you're a U-pick and all of a sudden the weather is horrible for the key center of your U-pick season this year. If you're comfortable with that, then it could be a great way of life for you. It can be a smart way to go. But most of the stories we see online about direct consumer are all people who want to grow big. They want to put their stock on the market. They want to go public. They want to do this, that. Well, fundamentally, you can't scale without stores. What about the value add? I think the, what another value add I've seen from retail that people ignore 
is that before a product makes it on a retail shelf, it's been vetted. They know the manufacturer is capable of manufacturing it. They know that the manufacturer is big enough to handle problems if there's a recall or something bad happens. They check out a lot of that stuff. I mean, the extreme opposite of it is like Kickstarter, where products go on Kickstarter without any vetting. So somebody can say, hey, we're, you know, we've got this great product and never have actually even made one. Just an idea in their mind. And that can be really bad. And we have plenty of Kickstarter disasters to show for that, where a lot of people lost lost their money. So what I'm hearing is they reduce risk for both sides of where they are, for the consumer as well as for the supplier. And in the process, they also provide choice and variety and convenience and logistics and all that. So do we see a future where some of that value add might just get automated with... AI and metaverse and blockchain and all the other buzzwords of the day? My answer is, I don't think so. Kevin Hillstrom has run numbers and they show that it's actually cheaper to sell your product through retail than to sell it direct to consumer. Not hugely cheaper, but a little bit. You know, everybody thinks that direct to consumer is cheap, but I walk my students through, okay, but when it's in a retail store, who pays for last mile delivery? Well, the consumer picks it up at the store. Consumer, absolutely. Yeah, the consumer does it. Well, who pays for the pick and pack? You know, going through the store, picking what's going to be. Well, the consumer does. When you sell it to them directly, you're paying pick and pack. You're paying last mile delivery. You're doing all these things and the most expensive parts of that. So even though there's a nice, looks nice to say, well, we're getting all the money. The truth is that you're, by and large, especially if you need size, if you need scale, you're much better to let the people who are in that business do it and you reap the reward. All right. The next topic, this one you brought up, and this was personalization. So I'll let you set it up. All right. So a few weeks ago, an article got shared, I guess a couple of weeks ago in a Marketing Week, headlines, forget personalization, it's impossible and it doesn't work. Uh-huh. Uh, being intrigued, I thought I'd go read the article. And I read through it and I kind of had this feeling like, huh, it's interesting. I don't disagree with them, but do they really have hard proof of this? And they claimed that there was a study that backed it up. So I went off to look at the study. And a study is between an MIT Sloan guy, a guy from Melbourne Business School, and then a couple of people at HP. And what they did doesn't relate to consumer market, which is kind of the implication of the article is it's all about consumer markets. So, but it's interesting what they did. They went and they needed to communicate with IT decision makers because that's what HP is all about. And they bought lists and according to their article, they tested, and I haven't gotten through all the details of how, but they tested algorithmic ways to try to identify who IT decision makers were. Uh And the results are actually kind of stunning because when they bought the digital lists and then sent personalized stuff to them, they were able to go analyze the list later. And they found out that kind of on the order of only 10% of the list were actually IT decision makers. And the other thing that was shocking in the list is that the list only accurately identified gender about half the time, a little less than half the time, which is... That's, that's seriously surprising. Yeah. Now, you and I were talking, I don't know if this is the old direct mail problem that amalgamated those kind of collected, I don't know if we call them amalgamated or whatever, but those lists where they bring together a whole bunch of data and merge it and then say, well, see, we know all these people. Those never worked in direct mail. But maybe something in the ad tech business has let the ad tech guys get away with doing that. You know, ad tech and big data kind of go hand in hand and all the magic and mirrors and 
you know, hand waving at smoke, they say, well, look, these are, these are great lists because we know exactly who these people are because they're online. We know that. Well, you don't is what this study says. I have several comments or questions about this. Yeah. One is if it is impossible, how do you know it doesn't work? Because you've never got to the point where mm -hmm. you have it. I buy it that it is very difficult to do. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's impossible. And I think it is possible in principle to do it and even do it in a dynamic way so they can keep track of the changes. And eventually we might have enough data to do this. I would hasten to add that it's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. And as you know, my big rant about data in marketing is that it's not for everyone. Not everyone has the wherewithal to collect the data and to filter it and to nurture it and to push it through what I call a data supply chain to add value to it. Mm -hmm. But along those lines, these bulk data, raw data is really a commodity now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't command a premium price. You have to create a data product out of it. And that requires filtering and nurturing and qualification. So you can't just buy a list and say, boom, I'm ready. No, you may have to wait another year to clean it up and find out what it is you're dealing with. Does that go with the sense of you get what you pay for? I mean, these lists have become cheap. I think you get what you pay for if you're lucky. Ah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Usually you get a lot less than what you pay for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> let alone if you're just like buying yeah. something that's not good quality to begin with. Well, I guess that's what I mean. You, know, you go out and buy the list and that's cheap list. And you're like, oh my God, look at this. We bought all these people. It's cheap. It's not that expensive. And then yeah. you go work with the list and you realize that you needed to inflate the price by a factor of 100 because that's how useful it is. Right. And of course, data brokers have an interest in telling you, oh, but it's only N dollars per name. Yeah. Yeah. So the larger numbers they got, the lower that per name becomes. Mm -hmm. But then you're also buying toxic assets. Mm -hmm. You're buying 100,000 names. And as you were saying, only 10% of it are even eligible to be valid. Yeah. And then you have to go figure out what the gender is. And then you have to figure out whether or not they actually do it. And then after that, you get to validate it. So I think it, those who actually nurture their databases and they have an opt-in process and it's not like unilateral push, but it's some kind of a pull and those can actually start building a community and really community is the name of the game. If you are doing that sort of personalization, you're doing it to a community that is eligible to be called a community. You know them enough to know what they want and where they are in their journey through your tent. And if you do it that way, then I think you can actually personalize and it will work. I chuckle because coming out of consumer direct marketing and having done a fair amount of email and, you know, lead generation and stuff like that, I, you know, it, it kind of just brings back up my frustration that all this web stuff hit and a whole bunch of vendors said, it's all new, it's all new, it's all, you know, and then none of the people who, who actually knew what they were doing were there on the ground. It's just what we've always done, which is you build a list, you figure out how good the list is. So we did lead generation, you get a whole bunch of leads, and then you mature the leads and you groom the leads and you keep them in a database and you age them down to certain. And that's just what you do. And that was always the presumption. And so it that's right. bothers me that we got this presumption with data or with the web that somehow um, the laws of gravity don't apply to it. I just don't think it is 
possible to buy a list and expect to do personalization in less than a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that's probably so, right. right? The, the other interesting thing I wanted to bring up out of the article is they also then talked about the reality of personalizing, saying, okay, we're going to send something personal. Now, you know, that personal comes at a whole bunch of levels. If you do if personal is I'm going to send out a direct mail piece and I'm going to use their name, Right you know, Dear Shaheen, right? That's where personalization started back in the right. direct That's mail right. world. That's right. And you, they found that that was effective, you know, that it felt better and it just kind of helped lift rates of response and things like that. But personalization these days has gotten to the point of somehow through the mists of data, I'm able to interpret what this person is going to be interested in when they receive my email. Therefore, I'm personalizing my email to their product interests. And I think they raised the, a serious question about whether that is even possible. I laugh with my students. You know, I'll talk about, yeah, you know, if I'm bored on an evening, I might go browse fishing rods on a bunch of different sites because I'm a fly fisherman and I love that. But I love the browsing. I'm not actually even browsing because I want to buy one. I've got plenty in my garage. You know, I'm not out enough to. Absolutely. I mean, oftentimes I'm watching a show and some topic comes up and I'm curious to learn more about it. So I'll go look for it. And it's entirely an academic research project. I am indistinguishable from a student uh -huh. writing a paper about something mm -hmm. who might be all over a topic, but is not a potential customer. Somebody, I think it was in the HP article, actually, but, but I, I know from another friend of mine who was doing telemarketing for an accounting software firm that they would do hardcore telemarketing, which stood the hard duty of calling, developing leads, trying to close them. And then they got sold on using data to use, the company did. So they fired a bunch of telemarketers and started using the data lists and things like this. And he was telling me the funny thing they found was the people that showed up by their behavior online most interested in the software were people who are out of work because they were going to try to go to a job interview and prove that they could use this software. <laughs> they're cramming. Yeah. So yeah, they're cramming. They're not the least yet, you know, a target for sale. Okay. That, that fits the student profile. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's the student profile. <laughs> but you know, the other thing is that there's obviously something to be said for taking advantage of all the data that you have. Yes. But one thing that I'm also observing and have experienced is the exact meaning of the data. And you very much can start with the word lead. Say, okay, exactly what did this group do to qualify for that label? Did they put it in a cart and checked out, but bailed before they put the credit card in? And when you ask that question, it turns out many times that it's a collection of different categories that are lumped under a single label. So the problem, my point with data, is to understand precisely what that label means. And if you do that week in, week out, after a while, you actually can develop your own intelligence on what that data means and how to interpret it. I wrote a blog post at one point about observed data. And that's really what we're looking at online when we look at browsing behavior is purely observed data. It's similar to uh, having cameras that track people in a store and you see them all stop at one shelf. And so you say, oh, this shelf is of interest to that person. Well, they may be shopping there because they're a friend to ask them to look at this product. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons they might stop there. And in my blog post, I observed that it's kind of the problem paleontology. When I was a wee lad and growing up, dinosaurs were scaly reptiles that lived alone. 
That's and right. dropped their eggs someplace and then ran off. And sometimes they hatched and sometimes they didn't. And by now, all of a sudden, what we know is some dinosaurs had feathers and they flocked some of them. And they there's all they're kinds chickens. of things. Yeah, they're chickens. And, yeah. so, and, and so now the question is what changed? What changed wasn't the brilliance of the scientists. They were brilliant paleontologists back then. What changed is we saw something different. We observed different data. The problem with data is that one of the problems in data is you never know what you don't know. It's hard to know what's not reflected in the data. And I think your point about living with the data for years, yeah, if you live with the data over years, you begin to get a good sense of that. This data is missing this element. Exactly. You know what it doesn't have, and then you don't get misled by that assumption. So another topic that came up with startups and how their go-to-market pans out, and there were a few Twitter threads about this too that touched on it. One item really is advertising and startups because they kind of don't do it, but they kind of do do it now, especially with digital so let's talk a little bit about that. What's your perspective? The thread that you and I browsed a little bit online, it kind of had this, this sense of, well, see, it's a strategic play that this, you know, startups don't use television, for example, to begin with. And they, they save that for a certain growth period and, you know, yada, yada, yada. I mean, I think the answer is observed behavior. If we're back to that. The observed behavior is, yes, let's observe it. Most startups don't use TV until they're big. But why they don't, is harder to get to. I mean, I find that it's so distracting for startups how cheap things are online and the myth that social media is free. You know, they love that that myth. Well, you know what? We don't need to do any advertising because we can just do social media and it's free um, or because we can do something and it's viral. Yeah, you know, it's, we've learned is it's very hard to create viral. Um, you can create something. What Volvo does is they create the thing and then they spend a bunch of money seeding it to bloggers who all right. say, hey, did you see this cool video from Volvo? Uh, and a lot of companies do that, that it doesn't go viral. It gets a push. You know, they're giving it a big push, 100,000, half million, million, might be a lot of money. My observation is that they do what they can afford. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And reality is that most startups can't afford TV. They can barely afford digital ads. And this is really why they go after content marketing and thought leadership and other ways of trying to get on their unfair share. But the flip side is also true. The startups that are lavishly funded, they do indeed do things that mature businesses do. I mean, look at Crypto.com. They sponsored a whole stadium in L.A. And they are a startup. And, mm-hmm. you know, they actually had the funding to, you know, to do point that. down significant dollars to do that. and. They got lots of visibility. They continue to. Now, will that translate to business? We shall see. Mm -hmm. But it kind of demonstrates my point that they do what they can afford. And those who don't do TV is because that's their reality. They're not able to even think about it. I also have found some problems that, especially if they're digital startups, that there's an anti-TV bias. Within the, within the companies. I mean, I was down at a company, that a fairly large company that begins with G that we might all know, talking to them about doing a half hour about the really interesting things that they had built that nobody knew about, you know, because at the time there were a bunch of, bunch of things. And I thought, you know, and the person I was talking to inside basically said, yeah, God, it would be really great to do a half hour to build the value of what the G brings people and all this stuff. But I can't even raise it in a meeting because it'll hurt me so much politically. I can't go into a meeting and say, hey, we ought to do a, an infomercial because it's, oh, that's old media, that's sleaze media, that, but mostly that's old media. 
So TV for years was avoided. Of course, now we're at a point where Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple all spend hundreds of millions of dollars on TV every year because it's really effective for them. The other thing with TV is cost of entry is high. TV uh-huh. is not cheap to test. You know, if you want to test something on TV, you have to spend probably 50000 just to eke it out. And if you want to test with really seriously, you're going to spend a half million. That's where it becomes such a finance issue. So a better question to me in my mind was, what is it good for, like you were just saying? Mm-hmm. What is its sweet spot? Is it good to capture a wide market share or is it good to maximize wallet share of your existing customers? And it trajectory of a startup usually is that you start with a very narrow focus Mm -hmm. to establish yourself and then you expand and then you go after wallet share and that's kind of a normal trajectory for them at what point in that journey do you want to insert tv advertising assuming you now have the funding to do it i would kind of split two things because actually I'll, i'll give you three roles for tv to think about there one is It's a mass market medium. What has been found, and I've done panels with people who ran into this, like Wix was on this panel, that at some point your growth stops and you have to do something to expand. And TV has proven to be a really good expander to mass market. So if you start with these things, you can reach easily. And then at some point, TV gives you a mass market ability. A lot of the direct-to-consumer retail plays like Warby Parker and people like that, they started all digital and and eventually they have to do TV because the cost of generating each new customer gets too high. Uh, Incidentally, back to the beginning of the podcast, they also have to build retail stores and TV and retail always do right together. So you've got mass market things. The share of wallet, it actually does play on share of wallet, I think, if you're big enough. So when you look at Budweiser, I, I love in, you know, in the teaching to say, uh, is anybody here not know who Budweiser is? You know, of course, <laughs> right? The point isn't that nobody knows Budweiser. The point is keeping Budweiser top of mind enough that your share of wallet from people grows. And that's really what you're talking about, reminder for higher purchase rates. So that if you've got a party coming up this weekend and you're going to 7-Eleven to pick up some beer, you pick up some butt. That if you've seen, if you have recency with having seen an ad for one of those consumables, it actually does a wall. And I call that share of wallet. Then the last one is what I did in the longer form, which is TV has an ability to communicate a lot in a short amount of time that is unequaled anywhere else. It, even buying Facebook with video, you're not going to be able to do it. Well, in fact, guess who advertise on TV? It's those digital brands. <laughs> yeah. Well, in fact, I used to, one of my uh, you know common observations is what does Amazon do when they have an interesting new product that they've made, right? Take they <laughs> put it in retail and put it on TV, right? They, I mean, they do. I mean, it's like when they came out with Alexa, where did it go? Target, Walmart, you know, it goes down that list and then they put out huge volumes of ads. So here's Amazon that runs around to people saying, oh, all your new product, come to our innovative website. Of course, when we have innovation, we go there, you know, <laughs> which they don't exactly say, but that's really what they're doing is they really do. If they have a, you know, they know they need the scale of TV and the scale of retail to make that pay out. Excellent. So that's a good note to conclude this episode. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Doug. Absolutely. And as usual, my appeal to our listeners, because we are marketing people, please share, like, distribute, comment, and keep us going. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. 
That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.